Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. My main artery was about 95% clogged. I remember them wheeling me out. They go, we're going to take you up to the, the operating room. And then there was Jeff and Sarah waiting at the end of the hallway. So they wheeled me around the corner. They stopped me. They let me talk to them for a minute. I told Sarah, I said, I remember thinking I want to be funny. Uh, there's a sedative in me at this point. So, you know, Sarah, I, didn't, I just wanted to think of something funny. So, I, you know, I was like, Sarah, I just want to let you know your, your boyfriend cheats on you. And then she said to me, she goes, Todd, if you live, this is going to be very uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, you, you fuck, you top me. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me. Barry Katz, very, very excited about today's episode with my guest, Todd Glass. This is part two. You're really going to enjoy it a lot. This guy is a force and a person who I've always loved. And as always, I'd like to thank all of you so much for supporting the show. Those of you who come back again and again. I'm so grateful. I appreciate it. And for you new people who are here and just subscribed, thank you so much for doing so. And hopefully you'll enjoy it and pass it on to your friends, family, and business associates, as I know that it can make a huge impact. And you can reach me at Barry Katz on Twitter or Instagram, and I'll be glad to answer every single message that I get, even if it takes me a longer time than normal. And as I always do, I'd like to get started with a cold open where I look at my guest and I never know what I'm going to say, and this is no exception. But when I think about Todd Glass, I think about a guy who always seemed to do things the way he wanted to do them. A guy who never, ever compromised his business approach to comedy and was always true to himself. And that's why when you look at his friends in the business and the people that he's close to, as you'll find out more about in this episode, you'll notice that they too are people who always were considered some of the most original and unique and authentic artists out there. You rarely see a guy doing a routine about what part of the chicken does the McNugget come from hanging out with Jim Jeffries. It just doesn't happen. And so when you look at the list of Todd's friends in the business and who he hangs around with and who he means a lot to and they mean a lot to him, you'll notice a correlation. It seems so simple, doesn't it, to just be true to yourself, to do what's in your heart and your soul and your mind and what your instincts tell you to do. But believe it or not, there are so many people in this world in all different professions, especially the arts, 
that just don't seem to do that. They always think to themselves, well, what would this person do? Or what would that person do? Or this person said this about my act. This person told me that I was this. I read this comment here and it said this about me. When you're around Todd Glass, you realize that, yes, he wants to be loved. Yes, he wants to be accepted. Yes, he wants to be respected. But not at a cost of losing his authenticity, his originality, his uniqueness. And simply put, if you can figure out how to stay true to yourself and how to move forward in your career using your instincts and using your mind to let you know and force yourself to never compromise, to always be true to your vision. And if you can create relationships along the way with the people in your profession who share the same ideology, I can pretty much guarantee you that you'll have the possibility of the kind of career that Todd Glass has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Let's just appeal to the sports fans of the audience. Every time on ESPN or whatever it is, every year there'll be which championship team was the top 50 championship teams in basketball, the best quarterbacks ever in football. So... In a world in sports where everything is ranking people, who should be in the Hall of Fame, who isn't, how many people are in the Hall of Fame from the 1900s, the 1910s, all the way to the 2000s? Well, this decade has the most people in the Hall of Fame. It's impossible that every decade of comedy and comedians that broke in those decades is going to be exactly equal. There's going to be some that people universally believe are stronger, some that people believe is less strong. So all I'm suggesting to you is if we were to rank decades of comedians and how they are doing, I think comedy now is the hottest and strongest it's ever been in live performance that I've ever seen in my entire life and with specials and everything like that. I'm suggesting that this decade, at this stage with a couple of years left, in my humble opinion, is not as strong a decade for a holy shit moment, original, groundbreaking comedians who broke during this decade. I'm suggesting that other decades were stronger. That doesn't mean that these people are bad. I'm just saying my opinion is, in this decade, the strongest decade out of all the six decades I know of in comedy that I've been a part of, it's the strongest decade for personal appearances and comedic growth and live performance. It's unbelievable. There's nothing like it with Netflix and all these networks doing things and comedians having their shot. Nothing in the world like it I've ever seen since maybe the 80s. That was a decade that I think is equal to what's happening here with live performance. But with the level of the holy shit moment stand-ups, you can't rank them all equally. And I think this decades of performers who have broken, I think would say that maybe not at this stage yet, they're at the level of some of the other decades. That's all I'm saying. Look, I admit, I, you got to understand, I came into this when I was walking here. thought, Todd, don't talk about what you like to talk about the best. Why? Because I've talked about it so much. And I thought, now, if you bring it up, oh, my God, I love talking about it. I will go at it. But I just disagree, basically, because it's like, ah, I know what I'm trying to say. Like You're saying that, but then you, you're, you're pointing out a lot of great things about comedy. But you're saying comedy specifically, stand-up comedy, it's not like it was. And I think you won't know that, and I won't know that 
till 25 years, 20 years later. We, 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 we actually, history writes itself a lot quicker today because of social media. So I think 15 years from now, hopefully we'll both be healthy. And then I'll sit here and then I'll go, this person, that person, this person. You just can't compare it. Let me tell you something. Steve Allen didn't sit around and, and want to believe that he was out of touch. You think Steve Allen ever once said, you know why I don't think there's good comedy? Because I'm old. Oh, Steve, is that why you don't think there's good comedy anymore? Because I'm old. I'm older now and I'm not looking at it. No, he tries to go. It has nothing to do with me being old. And he goes, if you would listen, I bet Steve Allen thought I can cleanly make some points. That I'm not saying there's no good comedians, but please listen to me. I can cleanly make points. Nothing has to do with me being old. And I think that's what everybody does. And I think that's what happens today. So I have zero tolerance for any... Because I think it's unnecessary, and I think if you knew what was better about comedy today, you would weigh it all out, and maybe this area, holy shit, it is better in this area, but in this better it's area. I think that comedians are more aware, some. You know, in the 80s, I stood around. All the comedians you're mentioning, and by the way, I agree with all the comedians. What I'm about to say does not mean that I don't, you know, God damn it, there were some funny comedians uh, that came out of that era. But, but again... That's what I mean. We could get into the semantics of it. I'm going to repeat it again. There was still an era of comedians that would have watched Gilbert Godfrey that, that were the older comedians and that wouldn't have gotten and thought, oh, he's not even. You know what, Gilbert Godfrey, they probably thought, it's one thing to be different. He's This guy's trying to bomb. Gilbert was the first comic I ever saw that did an entire set with his back to the audience. You know what? Me and my friends, look at it. I don't think it's cute to bomb. That's why I say Gilbert wasn't just trying to bomb. If I, I think to go on stage and try to bomb, I have no reverence for. And we didn't even mention Andy Kaufman. Well, yeah, and you, but we didn't. They didn't think Andy Kaufman then. They didn't think Andy Kaufman. And again, I'm going to repeat it one more time. I think it's very hard for you to think, and I wish I could think of more comedians than Steve Allen. But you know, there was a bunch of them, and they all thought this new breed of comedy. And you don't, if you don't think that same thing's going to happen, and that's why I ear on, on the very side of I don't even want to tiptoe into the comics today. I think at best, if you want to stay relevant, you just got to gotta fight that because it's, it's still great, even if it's different great. Even if it's different great, it's still better. And what I meant about the comedy in the 80s, I think there's more comedians today. I used to sit around with open mic night comedians and go, why do only white people come to comedy clubs? And we were not morons, but we asked it. Now, 25 years later, you look at the, the jokes that comedians did then. Now, I'm not saying they're still not bad comedians. I'm not saying that. But I think it's one thing that they're more aware of, and I think that's a good thing. You, you go, why are there only white people that come out to comedy clubs? And it was true. The comedy works in Philadelphia in 83, 84. It's mostly white people. But it's funny we didn't know. Now you look back, you're like, oh, my God, people would put in teeth and do an egregious person of Chinese of a Chinese person, the, the, and I hate using the words like sexist because they fall on deaf ears, but for the purpose of me trying to get to my point, sexism was fucking running rampant and homophobia and, 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 and racism in comedy was just fucking out of control. And I don't think just because you're in front of a brick wall, that's an excuse. And I do think I like comedy that's gritty. I like comedy that's, that, that's got guts. You can have grit and you can have guts and you can have fucking spit and and everything but not use it toward, towards the wrong group of people so i take it all into consideration um i did jokes that i look back on on a scale from one to ten if ten was the most egregious of hateful mean-spirited jokes i probably didn't do any tens but i have jokes i look back on when pushing boundaries in the 90s um i had a joke on stage where i used the n-word and it was about, it was, a, I don't even want to get into it, but that's something I went, I was just pushing boundaries to push them. And I, I hated now, I hated that I did that joke. There was one person that I knew years later was there, a person I like, and they were just appalled. And I went, oh, I want to call them and say, I'm appalled by that. And there were jokes I would do again, like, oh, what if a gay cop pulled you over? And I, I skipped up to the car and I was like, oh, Really? That's the joke I fucking did, you know? And there was a lot of others making fun of fat people. I thought, you know, the thing is, I, I can do better than that. Look, so we tie it back around. All I'm saying is that when you list all that stuff then, there was also a lot of bad stuff going on, and there was a lot of brilliant stuff going on in those ears. And the same is today. But before I knew um, music, let's say 15, 20 years, 15 years ago, 
I would hear people say there's no good music today. And to tell you the truth, Barry, and that's maybe where I'm going at this conversation a little bit, I didn't really know. Well, then why was I telling everyone there's new good music? Because I just knew what are the odds? I was going with not looking at it topically. I was going back from the 40s to the 50s and the same thing with comedy. People in the 40s thought the 50s music was bad. People in the 50s thought the 60s was bad. So I was just making a guess, not even on any homework, of just stats of the past going, there's probably good new music, without even fucking really knowing. Well, sure enough, I'm seeing a guy now, and he's a lot younger than me. He's 25 years old. And he puts a and the kids that work on my podcast, and when I say kids, some of them are kids. They're 20. Some are 30, but they know more new music than me. Now in the last year, there is so much music that I'm aware of, and I go... I was fucking right. Without even knowing, I was fucking right. There's a ton of good new music. It's great. It's, there's, there's Bob Dylan's out there today. There's Rolling Stones out there today. There's Beatles out there today. There's so many great new musicians. It's funny, in music, I probably know a little bit more, I feel like now, like naming names, like Tallest Man on Earth. I hope I said it right. Uh, Ezra Furman is really great. And you watch this stuff. If you watch enough new music, you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So that's the way I look at comedy. You know, I go, even if I can't come up with the names, I'm still right. I'm still right. And it behooves us zero to even to, to even mention that I know you, you, you could have said, oh, I missed you. You could go, Todd, all I was saying, I miss old comedians. I can get up on stage and sort of really knock it out of the park. But I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just overly defending young comedians because what else am I good for as I get older? Unless I defend like Steve Allen just drove me up the wall. Just shut up. And by the way, knowing what's going on today, you know when people go knowing, I see older comedians do this sometimes. They st- knowing what's going on does not mean with your nose up in the air you stick your head into a new scene. Picture me, everybody. I'm putting my nose up. I get snarky. I'm going to open the door of the M bar. Oh, what are they doing here today? And maybe if you did it and then eight months later, you get your nose up in the air. Oh, is this what comedy is today? That's not knowing comedy. That's not knowing comedy, because that's what Steve Allen did. Steve Allen watched comedy on TV. Steve Allen maybe poked his head into the new scene. He didn't really know. So I come out with my, maybe my fangs come out, but maybe justifiably. Maybe justifiably. I'm rooting for young comedians. I love comedy. I'm rooting for people to break through. And I think you're right about what you said before and why your opinion is more relevant than mine. Because you're in the clubs, you're hanging out with open micers, you're hanging out with young people. I might go to a comedy club once a week. You're there all the time. So I think your opinion is more valid and relevant than mine. Even though I still might not fully agree with you, I'd have to go with that you have the evidence more than me because you're out there. And I'm not in these clubs sitting around hanging out for three hours on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I think that I said some things today, even in each minute or each each five-minute segment, I might have got lost. But could I have said something that when you're laying in bed at night, if you soak some of the stuff that I said in, could you age and not go down that slippery slope? Because, you know... 20 years from now, you know, I'm trying to say, don't slip. Don't start saying comedy. Don't even don't even say it. That's what I'm sort of saying. I'm half kidding, half serious. But don't go down that slippery slope, because then when you're 70, you're going to be just it just gets worse and worse. So I just hold my ground. And um, so that's why I when that came out a little while ago and I tell you the truth. You know, in the last five years, we've been hearing, oh, comedians today, they're the social warriors and you can't say anything anymore. And I've. I've affectionately, you'll notice my voice will change here with no anger because it's true. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted and I and I'm and I'm and I'm just can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore of that whole thing because I look at it and I think, no, it's 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 getting better. It's getting better. And that doesn't mean you have to think it was bad in the past, because I don't. I just think it's getting better. One, Uno, dos, two, three, son, cuatro, Six. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names of people or things or events, and I want you to tell me what comes to your mind. Family. Uh, family, I'm, I'm very lucky. My, my mom was very ahead of her time. And now when she gets a little frustrating for me because she'll have problems in her own life and I got to deal with them, I always remember 
she was just 40 years ago embracing. She had like a friends that were hippies. They were like real hippies. And my mom was friends with them. And I knew about karma when I was six. And my, my one thing about my dad and mom, my dad died when I was 24. But I now look back with such clarity how much he taught me without even saying anything. He never sat me down and said like, oh, you know, this is how you should treat people. But I noticed my parents had all types of friends, you know. They had uh, white friends, they had black friends, they had rich friends, they had poor friends, they had friends that were heavy, they had friends that were thin. And I know that sounds weird to bring up a weight, but some people are weightist, you know, like if you're, you know, you, they had, we had, they had all types of friends. And, uh, and my dad would always be the type of guy that if we had someone like at the house, I mean, a few times we had like, maybe we had like a party at the house and we had it like catered, he'd be in the garage where they would set up camp, you know, to make the food, making them laugh. And, uh, so I uh, and my brothers and I, we always say the same thing when we get together at Christmas or the holidays, like there'll be some drama here and there. But overwhelmingly, we all have a really good time when we get together and we giggle and we laugh. So I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate. John Stewart. Oh, Jesus Christ. I I love John Stewart that the Daily Show brought me serenity. It really did. When when um. You know, I only gave this poem out to probably maybe six people my entire life, but I did the I did the Daily Show in the last month and a half that it was on, and to me, I never got to do Letterman, which was the trophy. I never got to do Letterman. I never did the Tonight Show. I never did never did any Tonight Show. Not with Johnny. Not with Jay. Oh, with with uh, with Jimmy, I did do the Tonight Show, but not since he's been. But um, to do the Daily Show, and Simon and Schuster got me on that show, and they they very. Adorably said, is, is that a good one to get? I'm like, yes. And uh, I gave him a poem when he left. I When I did the show, I left it there, and it was a Ralph Waldo uh, poem that said, I think success is to, um, to make one life. The one of the lines that I thought was to be successful, to, uh, to, uh, to win the affections, uh, to win the affection of children, and to make one life breathe easier. So I thought that times a million. So John Stewart. And also before he had that show, just, you know, out doing comedy and always fun and always, you know, always just a good energy. But the show did it for me. The show did it for me. And it really brought me serenity at times when I would get frustrated at the world. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best 
and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. Sarah Silverman. I adore Sarah. We've been we've been really good friends for a long time, and um, she's just I crave being around her sometimes. I just crave being around Sarah Silverman, and she was there when I had my heart attack, and um, so you know that's we were already really close. But uh, uh, I adore Sarah. I I just truly adore her. Louis C.K. Louis, you know, obviously, you, you know, the, 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 with the elephant in the room now, is that is that the right way to say it? You know, is it hard? Can you just go on and say it? Or can you... Um, opening up for Louis on the road really um, made me a better comedian because he would just give me these things. He goes, don't, don't do any of your, your old jokes tonight. You know, I go, well, I'm going to bomb. He goes, that's all right. You'll bomb. Then you'll sweat and then you'll do fine. And um, being on the airplane with him, just talking about comedy and, uh, and uh, you know, made, made me a, be a better comedian. Jimmy Kimmel. You know, I, I don't know why, but like I, always, I just saw Jimmy talking about Don Rickles literally while I was working out. I went back and looked at the tribute when Don Rickles died. And I get teary just because I think we both have the same. But Jimmy, that show has been like, they, the, the stuff they let me do on that show is amazing. Like, you know, they never, when I did stand-up on it, and I don't really do stand-up anymore. I'll come on and do a quick bit. But they would never even, they didn't even know what it was. They don't know what I was going to do. Now, I never let them down. I never went on national TV and made fun of us. I always checked if it was a sponsor. Hey, can I mention Kmart or something like that? But they let me do all these, almost like what Chris um, uh, got to do on Letterman. Uh, Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott on Letterman. Um, that They let me do so many fun things. And you know what it is? Like, doing talk shows make you feel like you're in the business. Like, you know, it's fun. You wait backstage. You go to the couch. So being a part of that just just been really great and i and i have a, a, a lot of affection for him as well conan o'brien fuck conan o'brien <laughs> when i watched conan o'brien letterman i loved but when conan o'brien came on i i remember going this is this like this is the guy doing bits like me and my friends do bits you know, like just the bits we do, the, the bear or the, the all the bits he did. I'm like, this guy's like us. Like, uh, you know, the all the all those bits, they just I used to leave messages uh, on my friend Mike Komen, who wrote for uh, Conan O'Brien. And when I would be sitting home, smoking pot, watching Conan O'Brien, literally giggling in bed, kicking my feet up in the air, how funny it was. And I would leave him messages how much I loved the show. Jim Gaffigan just you know like we just talked about comedy i know i still tour once in a while with jim and uh loves talking about comedy as much as me and you did we will sit for four hours and just talk about comedy and uh you know i get to, when i open for jim it's easy you know i just do, i'll do like 10 15 minutes it's so easy and then we just go out at night and talk about comedy daniel tosh I almost think it's adorable that when I when I'm with Daniel, he loves things to be perfect, like how dinner's gonna be, and afterwards, if we all go back to his room in Vegas, that the food comes out, and then he pulls out from a dresser that he hid chocolate chip cookies for everybody, and he wants it all to be so right and so perfect from the ride to the airport and when we're picked up and how much fun we all have, and uh, I I really I like doing my own tour dates. I do my own tour dates about 70% of the time, and then 30% of the time I'll open up for some of these people. And uh, Daniel's another, like, the, the, a fun one to be with. Always doing bits, always being silly. David Spade. Oh, my God. David Spade, I, I think you've heard this a lot, probably one of the funniest people on the planet. And he again, like, he is a bit machine. It's just bit after bit after bit. I don't get up. I don't go. I don't do anything during the day. I'm a nighttime person. But when I'm on the road, you know, David, I don't know how he does it. He stays out late, and then he gets up at 7 a.m. and eats breakfast. I'm like, what the fuck? But I will go to breakfast at 7 a.m. with David Spade because I know the second I meet him, wherever we're eating, if it's in the hotel, we'll be doing bits, and we'll be, we'll be just laughing. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon, you know, was when I when he took over that show and I had just uh, come out, you know, uh, come out of the closet. Uh, <laughs> that's how I say it. Um, 
had me on and I was so nervous to talk about it. I, you know, now years have passed. So it does seem like, really, were you that nervous? You know, he talked to me before the show. It relaxed me. So on that alone, I have uh, affection uh, for Jimmy uh, as far as uh, my, my that personal thing with him. Overrides maybe some what other people feel. Or I always felt that when Nick Swartzen was performing and when he was doing things before he came to terms out in public with what was his lifestyle, I felt like he was holding back creatively. And I felt afterwards he became better creatively in what he was doing, but I didn't feel like he has figured it all out. What was fascinating to me about you, I thought you were creatively wonderful before you came out and creatively wonderful after you came out. I didn't see that big a difference. Well, where it changed a little, and I appreciate you saying that because, you know, well, there was a point right after when I had my heart attack, I really literally thought if I died, was I the best comedian I could have been? Not the best comedian, the best comedian I could have been. And I, and I thought to myself, I would have said, well, you didn't talk about that on stage, but you still, you were able to be honest. It's not like you were full of shit just because you didn't talk about that. But you know what? And, and even when I stopped talking about my girlfriend, you know, uh, you know, which I was in a relationship, I would just say it was a girl. So for a lot of people, I always wanted to go, oh my God, it's not, it's sad that I had to change a guy to a girl, but I wasn't making up these elaborate stories. I was just changing the sex. But still, even when I stopped doing that, the one thing that did change is I, because I don't really literally talk about coming out that much or about being gay that much. For me, I always was told you should talk about the most interesting thing about yourself. Of course, that's just a no, sh a no brainer. And I don't think me being gay is the most interesting thing about me, uh, but it is a part of me. So even though I might not literally talk about coming out and actually that, I, that, that I'm gay on stage, uh, most of the time I don't, sometimes I do. Uh, but I talk about things that I used to hide. Like I care about lighting. I care about atmosphere. I care about design. I care about style. And I used to hide some of those things because I thought they were synonymous. So in that sense, afterwards, I got, I probably got a little more truthful on stage with some even little things that I cared about. An hour before your heart attack and 23 hours after. Oh, an hour before I was smoking pot out back of Largo with uh, Doug Benson and I got too high to go up I thought I said I'm too high to go up and I've talked about this on my in my show a few times but I, Doug Benson goes you're too high what's that like and I was like Doug it's you all the time you know what I mean like here too high I go no I I can only get so high like I the way I explain how high I can get if mushroom I've done mushrooms and pot that's pretty much it I don't mind floating off the ground a little you know what I mean? But I want to be able to tilt my weight and come back down. I can't just go float off into. So that night I felt like I couldn't. But then it passed and I went on. I do this bit where I'm running around the crowd that which which leads to why later I thought maybe I wasn't having a heart attack. I was just out of breath. I do my set. And this is the part that's weird that I didn't realize till I think two months later, a friend of mine was there and he said, do you remember that night you did the bit about what if I was having a heart attack? And I did. I was like being silly. And I went, what if I was really having a heart attack? But in the midst of it, I still was silly. No one below it, I thought I was having a heart attack. So I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. Well, I'm having a heart attack. And then no one thought I was having a heart attack. I did some bit like that, which is crazy. And then I literally had a heart attack. By the way, I do a quick version of this uh, sometimes in my act, but I never really go through all the beats because I feel it goes on too long. A I, I was performing after the show. I went backstage and I was, I was out of breath, but I didn't, think, I didn't think I was having a heart attack. I ran that morning for two hours. I, ran, I run every single day. I, could, I felt nauseous. That's the best way I can explain to someone how I feel. You know when you're hungover, but you get to the point where if you don't move, it's better than being the hungover where you can't get comfortable no matter what you do. But it was when you just go, okay, if I just breathe, maybe two hours after you're hungover and you go, okay, if I just stay here and I don't move and I just breathe in and out, I found a comfortable place and that felt pretty good. And I was like... I think I'm all right. But then after a while, Jeff Ross was there. Chelsea Peretti was there. Sarah Silverman was there. Doug Benson was there. And after a while, I heard Jeff Ross in the distance 
say we should call an ambulance. I'm like, no, no, don't call an ambulance. So they came over. Now, keep in mind, no one knew I was having a heart attack, so there were a lot of jokes being said. There's a picture of me laying on the floor. They didn't think they were taking a picture of a guy having a heart attack. Jeff Ross came over. Again, no one knew I was having a heart attack, and he takes my shoes off. And I remember thinking, it felt really good. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh. And then he, he goes, he acted like that. My feet smelled, and he put them right back on. And I remember thinking that was funny, and I hit the ground. And Sarah goes, oh, he's giving you a mercy laugh. And I wasn't a mercy laugh so I went no it wasn't that's all I said no it wasn't then finally I heard Jeff Ross say he's calling an ambulance I said tell him not to call an ambulance I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine I got too high no they called an ambulance the ambulance got there I didn't want to get in the ambulance and Sarah was sort of comforting me while the paramedics were getting there and she goes she goes sweetheart she goes do you not want to take the ambulance because you'll have to pay for it and I, and I was like, probably was thinking that. But then she goes, I'll pay for it, sweetheart. But then comedically, I have to explain that she put her nail on her, her nail from her fingernail on her tooth, you know, in that move. And she goes, like, she goes, but it will have to be your birthday and Christmas present. <laughs> you know, and I remember thinking that was funny. I thought, oh, there's so many funny things I can't laugh. I did not, except for Jeff Ross taking my show off. Other than that, I just heard it. I just heard it. I just heard it. And I would rub my leg a little bit. And then she goes, the one other thing she said that was funny, this might have been before the paramedics got there. She goes, she goes, sweetheart, do you want some warm scrambled eggs? Like the worst thing to, the ambulance got there. They said, let us put you into the ambulance. And we'll check your vitals, and that doesn't mean you have to go to the hospital. And that comforted me. Paramedic probably knew what he was doing. Put me in the ambulance. They checked my, they put the EKG. And maybe four minutes later, not even, the guy goes, sir, right now, uh, I don't want to alarm you, but you are having a heart attack. And I said, literally, I go, shut the fuck up. Like, how could I have had a heart attack? And, you know, they, they go to shut the doors, and... um and again, I did talk about this in my Netflix special, but I don't mind telling you now because there's so much around that I don't talk about there. But that that was the moment when I yelled out to Sarah. And, you know, to be pathetic and also aware of it is not that great. And I yelled out to Sarah, call my girlfriend. And I just was thinking, oh, my God, are you shitting me? You know, I was thinking that I was aware enough to go, what are you doing? And, and you know, and, and she was very aware of it because I told her about, you know, myself. And I go, call my girlfriend. I go, call my girlfriend. Like, you know, so they shut the doors. I, I remember hearing the siren. Whoop, whoop, whoop. I remember hearing them over the PA system uh, go, uh, I think it was uh, Blue Chevy, move to your right. But Todd, those were your best friends in comedy. Presumably they knew and were keeping it confidential. Everybody why? knew. So why did you say, call my girlfriend? But you're looking at it from their, what they feel, as opposed to I had already, when you're at a young age, when people tell you, when you hear, not my family, thank God, that's where I lucked out. But when you hear people saying, you know, it was all, it was a lot of bad stuff about gay people. And when that starts, you hear that when you're five, you hear that when you're three, you hear it when you're four. But even around the people you feel safe. Doesn't with. matter. That's why I was like, can you believe this? Like my friends did not care. I knew my friends didn't care. I knew most of my comedian friends knew. I knew they didn't care. I was lucky. I was in a community that could give a shit. But I, this stuff starts when you're young. You know, it starts when you're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And then at that point, you get comfortable in the lie. And I also thought, which is a little embarrassing, but I will tell you that if I told people, I, I wouldn't be cool anymore. You know, like, I know that's weird to say because that oh, you think you're cool? I felt I was happy as a comedian. I felt when I walked into a comedy club because I had been doing it for a while and I treated everybody. I always treat everybody with respect because I'm an insecure person. So... Uh, I like I I need a lot of love and the way you get it is you got to give it so it works both ways I don't I do it because I want to receive it and I know if I give it out I'll get it and then I'm at my happiest so I walk into a comedy club I always felt pretty good so you're in the ambulance so I'm in the ambulance and I hear you know blue Chevy move to your right I remember that for some reason the siren it didn't go on long because Cedar sign I was right across the street we get to the hospital they're moving aggressively and I do remember that they were moving very aggressively my main artery was about ninety five percent clocked. And they were moving very aggressively, which scared me a little because I thought they were like really moving quickly. You know, they didn't give you a sedative. They did once the minute I got into the hospital and then I felt great. I felt great. And I remember vomiting as soon as they gave me the sedative, which my dad vomited right before he died. 
which I knew. I wasn't there, but when I was 24, uh, my dad vomited right before he died. And uh, so that really scared me. You know, that really scared me. And uh, then a nurse came in. She goes, uh, we have really good news. Uh, one of our best surgeons, it just pulled into the hospital. So that, that, you know, I was glad that he was there. I was aware. I was like, I knew we were waiting for a surgeon. They, they, brought, they, they brought me upstairs. I remember them wheeling me out. They go, we're going to take you up to the, the operating room. And then there was Jeff and Sarah waiting at the end of the hallway. So by their faces, I thought everything was all right. You know, Sarah told me later, she goes, Todd, we thought it could be goodbye forever. Like, we had no idea, you know. So they wheeled me around the corner. They stopped me. They let me talk to them for a minute. I told Sarah, I said, I remember thinking I want to be funny. Uh, there's a sedative in me at this point. So, you know, they, they, um, they let me talk to Sarah and Jeff. And I said, uh, Sarah, I, didn't, I just wanted to think of something funny. So, I, you know, I was like, Sarah, I just want to let you know your, your boyfriend cheats on you. And then she said to me, she goes, Todd, if you live, this is going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> I know, and I remember thinking, you, you fuck, you top me, <laughs> you know? You know, it's just very funny. If you live, so they wheel me in, and, I, and at one point, I hear a nurse tell another nurse, why are his pants still on? And I got it. They probably supposed to pull my pants off downstairs. They, they have scissors. They cut me. They cut the two people. They cut my pants on one side. They cut my pants on the other side. I think they cut my boxers, and they just took them right off. And Barry, I, I, again, I, I talk about this in my act sometimes, not with obviously all the other details around it, but this is true, even though I talk about it in my act. I thought... Wouldn't you think if somebody said to you, hey, when they took your pants off, were you uncomfortable? You'd think. You'd go, oh, my God, no, you're so out of it. You don't even give it. I'm laying there naked. I, no, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack, and my dick was just laying there, there, just with five people looking at nothing, just laying there. I didn't know how, what it looked like, just laying there, just nothing. And then, I, But then the doctor came in, so I forgot about that. And then he leaned down, and he said... Um, I said, do you think I'm going to need open heart surgery? And he goes, I think you're going to be just fine. He goes, let's get this going here. I think we'll get a stint in you and you're going to be just fine. You're good? And he leaned down. Like he got right to my eye level. Dr. Dohat. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, I was in. I remember getting wheeled out. And then I sort of came to in my room. And uh, Jeff was still there. Sarah was still there. Now it's like five in the morning. And the guy, the guy that I was seeing at the time, this was like a moment for me, which I was like, and, and he came, he was there and they all knew like, you know, oh, and Flanagan from Largo was also there and they all knew about it. I think Sarah told them, even the ones that weren't positive, because when Chris showed up, they should know who he is. And I was glad that they told that that he was he was the person I was seeing, and um Chris came into the room and he had like a flower that he got from you know from the street you know he just took it out of the street you know like off a tree and he walked into my room and he shoved it under my pillow, and I thought, you know what I mean like this is not the life I want to lead this is not healthy you know and uh, then you know he leaves everybody leaves I wake up and I'm in the hospital for about I think three days. Um, David came by every day. David Spade and did bits. They were so funny. Every bit he did was like so funny. And then I felt like I got better attention at the hospital once some of my comedic friends came in, which is always a bonus, you know. And he was so nice to everybody. And then they were nice to me, you know. They they were nice anyway, but they were extra nice. I was amazed at all those people at that hospital. You know what I really thought? I lucked out like it must be everybody's first year when they're not bitter and mean. As I was there for three days, I found out 22 years, 16 years, 10 years, and they were so great. Then I spent a few days there. Never got choked up really there at all. I never did. But when they brought me outside and, you know, they make you take a wheelchair out to your car. Three days later, Chris came to get me. When they, when I got outside and I heard not only the birds, but yeah, that's right, the obligatory birds chirping, but the jackhammers and car horns beeping. Just, just, uh, just lost it just lost it and I hadn't I hadn't lost it at all you know and before that but I really lost it and and um you know Chris was like are you okay and I started laughing and crying I go yeah I'm fine I just go like you take that for granted jackhammers like they sounded fucking beautiful 
and horns and jackhammers. So sometimes when I hear a jackhammer to this day, I love it. I'm like, I love it. It's like, that's the sound that I remember. And I went home and, uh, you know, thought I should be more honest about who I am. And it took me three years to do it, about two, three years to do it. And I did it. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. Your proudest moment in show business. I w let me tell you something. Uh, life was good before it. It really was. I, I always say this, not because I don't want to say I don't get depressed, but out of the people that really suffer from depression, I don't want to go. I don't get depressed. I get funks. Of course I get in the funks. But overwhelmingly, I'm a pretty happy person. I'm, I get to do what I want for a living. I get to be around comedians. I love, I, there's nothing more I love. That's why here at the festival, I just like can't get enough of it. I think comedians overwhelmingly are decent and they're kind and they're loving. They're everything I need. And I love being around them. So over, I am happy. But doing that, going on Mark Marin and coming out, it's so much better. It's five years later, but everything is so much better now. So I'm so glad that I did it. It was, and I was nervous. And you know, I had a friend that I finally said, he's, he's, in ther he's, he's a therapist, but he's, we call him almost Dr. Kevin Sousa because he didn't have his degree yet. So he has to, when he did my podcast, he had to say, I'm not a doctor yet, you know, legally. So he was helping me through it. And I was in Philadelphia staying at his parents' house, actually. I was home and I was bound there, their house, like, stay here if you got to get to the train in the morning. I was in the, in the same room that I used to hang out with him when we were younger. They live in the same house. And I called Kevin. I said, Kevin, you got to help me. I want to come out and I don't want you to let up on me. I know we talk about things sometimes and then a year goes by and he called me in their house and he said, Todd, remember I told you I'd keep up on you and he did. And uh, when we hung up, I called Mark Marin. I left him a message and I said what it was about, not directly. He called me back in three minutes. I let it go to voicemail because I was nervous. And then I said, God damn it. I, I have to call. And I called him and I told him what it was. And I, I didn't even think he might go, oh, Todd, I'm so proud of you, but this is not something I would want to do on my show. Like, that's what I was thinking. And he was great with it. He was so, um, he was great. We talked probably six, seven, eight times on the phone until I did it. And he was always so great. And uh, he said, I'll put it in the can. And he goes, Todd, obviously, I'll throw it out if you don't want it. And I said, can you do me a favor? Don't. Once we do it, you do it. I, I don't want it. I don't want the opportunity. So please don't give me the opportunity to take this back. And then I did it. I got in the car afterwards where, you know, where he lives. I was with a friend that I asked to go with me and I got in that car and you know what? I felt so amazing. I felt so great. I felt I, I presented myself. I worded things properly. I was clean in my thought and I was the, I was so, so happy. Did you mention Steve Allen? <laughs> I did. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Yesterday, I shouldn't have wrote my name on the Netflix sign of Magic Marker. <laughs> I'm so, I thought they should have a sense of humor about it. Then I was laying in bed last night and thought, Todd, you're so into aesthetics. You're so into things looking good. And this thing looks so nice that I think about it. They had a jukebox and they have the sign and it, it just whoever d did it, who, someone that's an artist put this together. And I went over, I didn't do it, but I asked someone to do it. And I took a magic mark and just wrote all over it. If someone did that to something that I put together, I'd be like, what the fuck? And if they go, come on, you're a comedian, laugh. 
I'd be like, oh, come on. So anyway, I, I'm half kidding that I say that. But I, do, I did regret afterwards. I thought, I hope they're not mad because like, you feel like a little kid. And then I thought, come on, it's a comedy festival and you're Netflix. And I was projecting that someone got mad. Who knows? Maybe they laughed and but had to erase it anyway. I did think from the other perspective. I thought, Todd, you're so into aesthetics. If somebody just took their big fat fingers and scribbled something all over that you took the time to do, an artist built that, a carpenter put it together. I really looked at it from that perspective and I went... Who do I apologize to? But then, oh, what do you mean apologize? I should be mad if you're mad at me. But I had time to lay in bed and think about it. It was there for two days. It's weird because I was split on it. I go, am I apologizing because I'm insecure? Should they be laughing at it? Or should I be apologizing? And last night when I talked about it, I went, you know what? I wish I did know someone because I think I could apologize. I, I think there's other funny things you could do. And it doesn't mean you have to graffiti uh, somebody else's uh, art. And it was art. It was art. It was a display, and it was art. So I hope someone hears this, and they, and they seriously are like, you know what? I believe them, because I, I, it does come from my heart. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Last question. What advice do you have for the young teenager growing up in the Philadelphia area or anywhere else who has some kind of inspirational thought of getting in this crazy business, and how do you work through it, the ups and downs, and have the kind of amazing career that you've had? Well... If you find, I used to tell people, you know, if you find yourself saying comedy is a cutthroat business, you know, or stand up, because it starts early, even the open mic night scene, there's people like, yeah, it's whatever city they live in, they'll be like, yeah, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit, you know, backstabbing, you know what I mean, that type of stuff. It, what, it, backstabbing is a strong word, but you get what I mean. You know, when someone thinks, yeah, it's not, not very supportive in this scene. I'm not saying there aren't a few isolated situations where a positive person can be immersed into a negative situation, and that's not you. That's not what I'm talking about. When you overall think the scene is a negative scene, you, you go inward because it's you. Because there is both in every city. I think comedy overwhelmingly is an unbelievably supportive. I think comedians by nature want to help when they see someone that's funny. At least all my friends, I, I think their instincts are to go, God, this guy, this girl's funny. I want to, I want to do something. I want to help them. I want to make, so I think it's very supportive, but you got to throw out that type of love. So if anybody that's sitting, listening to this, that's a newer comedian that goes, I actually do think the scene here is a, a little negative, but I never really thought it was me. You're going to move to Chicago and find a negative scene. You're going to move to L.A. to find a negative scene. If you're not a good set type of a guy, do you, are you the type of person, guy or girl, that sticks around when you saw a new funny comedian? Sticks around just to wait six minutes just so when they get off stage you can go, hey, I'm heading off to the, the, the improv, but good set. That was really fun. I love that joke you did about, you know, whatever, to get it back. So if you, if you think it's not a loving scene, go inward because every city, I think, has both. It's just who you hang out with. And uh, when you hang out with the supportive ones, you know, and again, I said it before, nothing wrong with jealousy. Turn it into motivation. Turn it into motivation. And, uh, and, and the stupidest piece of advice I can give, when you go up on stage, write your notes in a big black Sharpie so you can put them down on the stool and you can read them from the stool. Because that way, when you're in the midst of one joke, because what happens a lot when you're new, even when you're getting a big laugh, but then you think, oh, my God, I don't know my next joke. And then you got to pick the piece of paper up. Just write big black letters on a piece of paper. Take up the whole piece of paper, put it down on that stool, big black Sharpie, and you do it. That's I, the reason I like that advice, even though it's really, Todd, that's all you got. That's tangible. That's something somebody will try it and they'll be like, you know what? He was fucking right. It was a lot easier to do my set when I'd have to pick the piece of paper up after every joke. So... And, uh, oh, and get over a bad set. Because in the beginning, if I had a bad set, I would go home. I would just go home. I, would, I didn't want to hang out with other comedians. But once you do go out, even after a bad set, you end up forgetting about it. And you end up doing another important thing in comedy, hanging out with comedians. Now, mainly you do it just because it's fun. But it also works. It's business, too. It's, the, it's great business. It's the type of business. If you can just go out and have fun with comedians and prove you're easy to be around, prove you're, you're a laugher, you're also a listener, that's the type of things that other comedians, when they're doing a sketch or something, they'll be like, oh, you know who you should use, even if they never saw your comedy. And that happens hanging out. So when you have a bad set, try to get over it. Because once you do and you're out at a bar and you're hanging out with everybody, you'll get over it. And you won't miss the best part of that night, which was hanging out with comedians. Todd Glass, you are a machine. 
This has been one of the most original, unique, bizarre, emotional, and just overall extraordinary podcast I've ever had, brother. Thank you so much. You're a good man. So unbelievable. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Google Burger, September 5th, 2018. The heading reads, tell all your friends, five stars. And the comment reads, spectacular pod. The way Barry interacts with his guest and asks such thought-provoking questions sets him apart. He is an unsurpassed active listener. I won't speak for everyone, but I, for one, walk away with some new learning each episode. What more can you ask for? So tell all your friends with a large, large smile, happy face. All right. Thank you so much, Google Burger. It means a lot to me, especially when your name that you use to comment for just makes me laugh. Is there anything funnier than the word Google Burger? I really appreciate it. Congratulations. You are a winner. And that wraps up part two of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And Good Company, an extraordinary web series on YouTube that host Scott Bowling created, where you can watch music interviews with incredible artists talking openly about their journey in the music business. If you like a great in-depth music interview where you can hear about each album in chronological order and what the artist experienced along the way, this is the show for you. Interviews with incredible talents like Michael Sweet from Striper, Clinton Lejean from Seven Dust, Brian Head Welsh from Corn, Elias from Nonpoint, Mikey from Islander, Sonny from POD, and Rich Ward from Fozzie and Stuck Mojo, just to name a few. Check out Good Company on any social media outlet under Good Company with Bowling or go to www.scottgoodcompany.com. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powders that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to bokusuperfood.com. That's 
B-O-K-U-Superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Chuck Lorre. Take the failures as, as learning opportunities and keep going. And somebody says you can't do it, tell them to go fuck themselves. Maybe not out loud, but internally. <laughs> you know, there is that. You, you, you do have to be able to have a, a strong opinion of yourself, even if it's, you know, even if it's entirely, you know, misplaced. You need to have it anyway. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.